Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. These days, we're in a constant state of fear. Whether it's going grocery shopping, going to the movie theater, or sending our little ones off to school. Anyone with a weapon is capable of taking another's life in an instant. It seems like nowhere safe. Today's story is one of many we've all heard over and over. A beautiful teenage girl robbed of the rest of her life by two twisted individuals whose goal was to become famous. Even at home, she wasn't safe from the betrayal of friends she trusted. On September 22nd of 2006, Cassie Jo Stoddart was house-sitting for her Aunt Allison and Uncle Frank Contreras. They lived in a beautiful nearly 2,000-square-foot home in a quiet suburban neighborhood in Bannock County, Idaho. At the time, her uncle and aunt had to go out of town for the weekend and hired her to come take care of their three cats and two dogs while they were away. Like most teenagers would while house-sitting, Cassie decided to invite over her boyfriend Matt Beckham, who then invited his two friends to come hang out. Matt arrived around 6 p.m., and his friends Brian Draper and Tori Adamchick came a bit later. Cassie gave them all the grand tour of the house, which included the basement. After discussing what they should do for the night, they all settled into the living room to watch Kill Bill Volume 2. Before the movie had come to an end, Brian and Tori abruptly left, stating that they wanted to watch a movie at their local movie theater instead. A few hours later, while the couple sat on the couch watching TV together, the power went out for just a few minutes and came back on. However, Cassie couldn't help but feel uneasy because the dogs kept staring at the basement door and would periodically give a low growl in its direction or bark. Matt could tell Cassie was afraid, so he called his mother and asked if he could stay the night with her. Matt's mother said no, but said Cassie was more than welcome to sleep at their home tonight instead and that she would drop Cassie back off at the house in the morning. Cassie turned down the offer because she had accepted the responsibility to house it and felt she needed to hold herself to that. Around 10.30 p.m., Matt's mother came and picked him up. Matt decided to call his friends who he had seen earlier that night, Tori and Brian, to see if they wanted to meet up later. But Tori was acting weird and whispering on the other end of the phone. Oh, hell no. I did a lot of house-sitting when I was a teenager, and it's always creepy to be in a strange house alone at night. The dogs alerting to danger and the power going out, those are deal-breakers. Forget your responsibilities and get out of there at that point. Yeah, the dog barking at the door would have been enough for me, and I'm not faulting her in any way, but me personally would have gotten up and locked the basement door with a weapon in hand. (laughs) Right? I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that it isn't ghosts or their imagination, especially since Matt's friends were acting weird and whispering on the phone. While it turns out during the house tour Cassie had given the teens, Brian unlocked the basement door so that he and Tori could get back in without setting off any alarms. They did leave the neighborhood that night, but they returned shortly after. They parked down the street and changed into dark clothing, gloves, and masks that were painted white. They made their way back into the home Cassie and Matt were at, but upon entering the basement, decided to make loud noises in order to lure them to the basement and scare them. When that proved to be unsuccessful, they decided to locate the circuit breaker to cut the power off in the home. They figured that if the power goes out, they're sure to come to the basement to see if they could turn it back on. Their attempt to lure the couple was once again unsuccessful, and the boys decided to turn some of the lights back on. Once Tori and Brian heard Matt leave, they decided to cut the power again and see if they could lure Cassie to the basement. Once their second attempt failed, they made their way upstairs. Brian opened the door at the top of the stairs, slamming it into the wall to scare Cassie. 
She was asleep on the couch in the living room when Tori and Brian, both armed with hunting knives, ran in and brutally attacked her, stabbing her exactly 30 times. Out of all 30 stab wounds, 12 of them had the potential to be fatal because they were stab wounds to the heart. The very next day, Tori met up with Matt to hang out, and during this time, Tori watched Matt repeatedly call Cassie. He even asked Tori to give him a ride back to the house to go check on Cassie, but Tori said that he didn't have enough gas and Matt had to let it go. What the actual fuck? At first, it seemed like they were just trying to scare them, like pulling a prank or something. But they brought knives with them and stabbed her 30 times. Hurting her had to be the plan or at least an option. I'm sorry, but there's no pranking or joking when weapons are involved. They knew exactly what they were doing. Plus, a joke like that would have made me end the friendship and call the police. And the next day, they act like they don't know anything when their friend is worried about his girlfriend? Those kids are sociopaths. Matt had no idea his friends had just killed his girlfriend the night before. He was completely out of the loop. But Matt figured Cassie wasn't responding to him because she was just too busy house-sitting. But at 1.15 p.m. on September 24th, Cassie's aunt and uncle returned home. The first thing they noticed that concerned them was that all the doors were open. When they made their way inside, they found broken glass at the bottom of the stairs. Their first thought was a possible break-in, but as soon as their 13-year-old daughter made her way up the stairs, she stumbled upon the lifeless body of Cassie. Police were called immediately and started looking into the case. Matt was their initial suspect because when they spoke with him, he didn't show any emotion about her death. However, he did pass a polygraph test and let them know Brian and Tori were there that night as well. Both Tori and Brian were interviewed the same day and told investigators the same story. They shared that they went to Cassie's house for a party at 8.30 p.m., but when it never happened, they left to catch a movie. They even named the movie that they went to go see that night, which was Pulse. So authorities questioned them further about the movie, but neither of them could describe a single scene. Brian was interviewed again the following day and still could not describe the movie. His parents gave them permission to search his room, which is where they found a knife he claimed belonged to a friend. You're going to claim you are at a movie you actually know nothing about? Idiots. Yeah, they would have done themselves a favor by seeing the movie the next day or the days leading up to that night. Clearly, they don't think about things or plan carefully. (laughs) No one's buying the, oh, that belongs to a friend excuse either. Yeah, that excuse is trash. On September 27th of 2006, both boys were arrested and charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. And it didn't take long for them to turn on each other during the interrogation, doing their best to convince detectives that they were forced to be there or had no idea what the other one was planning. Brian told him that he was in the same room during the killing, but Tori was the one who delivered all the stabbings. But when he was confronted by the fact that his story didn't match up with the evidence, he told them he only stabbed her because Tori commanded him to do so. Three days later, Brian led the police to Black Rock Canyon. There they would find a stash of evidence, which included, and bear with me because it's a lot, a book of matches, a melted hydrogen peroxide bottle, one pair of blue gloves, one pair of black boots, one pair of fingerless gloves, one multicolored mask, one large dagger type knife with a sheath, one silver and black handled knife with Sloan written on the blade, one small dagger type knife with a sheath, one Sony videotape, one black handled serrated folding knife, which later DNA tested revealed that Cassie's blood was present on that knife. Jeez, that is a lot. But wait, there's more. Seriously? <laughs> oh, yeah. A partly burnt piece of paper with writing and pencil, 
one red and white mask, which later DNA testing revealed a partial DNA profile of Tori on that mask, one single black glove, which later DNA testing revealed a partial DNA profile from an unknown male, a pair of partially burnt black Puma brand gloves, which later DNA testing revealed that Cassie's blood was soaked into those gloves, one blue plastic garbage bag, a partially burnt black long sleeve Hagger brand dress shirt, a Calvin Klein black dress shirt, which later DNA tested revealed that Cassie's blood was present on that shirt cuff, one white and gray sock, and a small piece of black cord. But the most important thing they found was a damning videotape that contained footage of both killers explicitly planning Cassie's murder. This video proved without a doubt that attacking Cassie wasn't just a snap decision made in the heat of the moment. This was premeditated and calculated. At the end of the video, they also recorded themselves excitedly reacting to killing Cassie. In the video, Brian said, and I quote, Just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. I stabbed her in the throat and saw her lifeless body. They went on to say that they would make history by becoming notorious serial killers. All that evidence and a videotape confessing to the murder, just for good measure. Okay, then. They literally left all the evidence out in one place. It sounds like an open and shut case. Well, the question everybody wanted to ask Ryan and Tori is why? Why commit such a heinous crime and why choose to do it on someone who considered them a friend? During the trial, the prosecution shared that in Brian's case, he was inspired by the Columbine High School massacre shooters. And in Tori's case, he was inspired by the Scream horror film, which is where they got the idea to wear all dark clothing and white masks. With enough evidence, including the videotape, mask, clothing, and weapons, eight months later, on April 17th of 2007, Brian was convicted. And on June 8th of 2007, Tori was convicted. They were officially sentenced on August 21st of 2007 of first-degree murder, receiving a mandatory sentence of life without parole, with an additional 33 years for conspiracy to commit murder. Now, instead of taking accountability for selfishly taking a young woman's life away, Brian and Tori filed separate appeals in September of 2010 and April of 2011. In Brian's case, he was hoping for a vacated conviction or a limited life sentence with the possibility of parole after 33 years, but both appeals were denied. However, the high court decided to vacate Brian's conviction on conspiracy to commit murder, but upheld his first-degree murder charge, which meant he was still serving life in prison without the possibility of parole. As for Tori, he wanted to appeal because he thought it would have made a difference if the jury had heard from character witnesses on his behalf. But after numerous appeals over the next few years, in November of 2019, his sentence was upheld after his appeals were denied by the Idaho Supreme Court. Stefan now shed some light on who these kids were and what led up to this horrific event. Cassie Jo Stoddard was born December 21, 1989, to her mother Anne. She came from a loving home and had two siblings, her sister, Christy, who was six years older than her, and her brother, Andrew, who was 18 months younger. She was known as a vibrant, outgoing girl with a passion for music and art. She had plans to graduate from high school and study law one day. Cassie was known by her loved ones as a responsible, straight-A student. She put school first and was adored by her classmates because she was kind and friends with just about everybody. Matt had met Cassie one year prior to her murder, but met his friend Tori back in the seventh grade. According to classmates, Brian and Tori met Cassie while joking around in class. Some even speculated that Brian had a crush on her and was jealous of their friend Matt for dating her. 
Brian Draper was born March 21st, 1990 in Salt Lake City, Utah, to Pam and Carrie Draper. He was bullied growing up due to him having a stutter. He moved to Pocatello, Idaho when he was a junior in high school. This is where he met Tori, Matt, and Cassie, who were all also juniors. Tori was born on June 14, 1990, to Shannon and Sean Adamchick and raised in Pocatello, Idaho. Tori and Brian shared an interest in films and eventually made some amateur movies together. They bonded over their love for notorious serial killers like Ted Bundy, the Zodiac Killer, and the Hillside Strangler, and their hope of one day committing their own. They fantasized about making a documentary about their murder sprees together. Cassie sounds like a beautiful soul, but as far as the guys, I'm sorry, but I'm sick of these kids being bullied, thinking murder is their only route to go. Seek therapy or a community of friends that will uplift you. And Cassie didn't bully him. She was nice to them and befriended them. In this case, that is just an excuse. He wasn't looking for revenge against a bully. They just wanted to kill someone. Exactly. So can we go behind the scenes? Like what led up to them actually wanting to kill her? Well, the days leading up to Cassie's murder, no one knew what was really going on behind the scenes. On August 31st, 2006, Tori asked an 18-year-old friend, Joe Luciero, to purchase a few knives for him and told him it was because he wanted to start a collection. Joe agreed, so Tori withdrew $40 from his bank account, and Brian and Tori picked Joe up and drove him to the pawn shop. There, Tori chose one knife, and Brian picked out three. After that, the boys made it their mission to plan out the perfect murder and document it on camera. In one video recording, taken on September 21st at 8 p.m., Tori can be seen driving while Brian sits in the passenger seat. In this video, they were casually discussing an unknown intended victim that was female. Her name has been removed to protect her privacy. Brian looked at the camera in this video and said, and I quote, we're going for a high death count. We're going to make history. We're going to make history, end quote. Tori followed up his friend's statements with, for all you FBI agents watching this, uh, you weren't quick enough. Brian continued with, you weren't quick enough and you weren't smart enough. And we're going over to Blank's house. We're going to snoop around over there and try and see if she's home alone or not. And if she's home alone, splat, she's dead, end quote. Literally, no need to write a confession because your videotapes tell it all. They can literally be charged with conspiracy to commit murder based off these tapes alone. So cocky and so stupid. If they were dumb enough to make one recording, I know there's more. Oh, you know it. On the night of September 21st, the night before the murder of Cassie, they made another video recording saying, There should be no law against killing people. I know it's the wrong thing, but hell, you restrict somebody from it and they're going to want it more. They continue the video discussing how they're going to kill the potential female victim they were talking about in the earlier video. The video cuts and they come back on saying she wasn't home. Then they say they're going to drive to Cassie's house, lure Matt outside, and kill him. Fifteen minutes later into the video, as it was pointing at the windshield and it appears that they're driving around, one of the boys can be heard saying, We found our victim, and as sad as it might be, sure, she's our friend, but you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie Stoddard. She's going to be alone in a big dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? I mean, holy shit, dude. I'm horny just thinking about it. 
End quote. As if these idiots aren't digging themselves into a deeper hole, they discuss going to another unknown female's home and killing her before heading to Cassie's to, and this is Brian's quote, kill them one by fucking one. To which Tori replies, one by one? Why can't it be a slaughterhouse? Brian responded with, two by two and three by three because we've got to keep it classy and followed that up with, so yeah, it's going to be extra fun. Is it going to be extra fun? (laughs) Like, seriously, why are they trying to make this sick plan sound poetic? It's like they're playing pretend. They don't seem to understand the seriousness of what they're discussing. And I'm not sure they actually believe that they would go through with it at that point. I mean, I really don't understand how people can think like them. (laughs) The video goes on. And this is from their mouths, not ours. But let's face it, we can all agree with this. And I quote, We are sick psychopaths who get their pleasure off killing other people, end quote. And finally, the tape ends with Brian saying, murder is power, murder is freedom, goodbye. These guys were really determined to videotape all the evidence like some sick movie because the next day at 8.23 a.m. in the same video, they can be seen filming Cassie at her locker. After approaching Cassie, the guys can be heard saying, Hey Cassie, hey girlfriend, I'm getting you on tape, okay? Just say hi. And Cassie, thinking her friends are just recording her for fun, said hi before the guys thanked her and ran off. At around noon that day, they skipped class to film another video. In this video, they can be seen sitting at a table with notebooks as the camera is facing them. Brian says, September 22nd, 2006, we're skipping our fourth hour. We're writing our plan right now. And Tori says, I'm making our death list right now to Brian. Brian looks back up at the camera and says, I'm sorry, Cassie's family, but she had to be the one. We have to stick with the plan. And she's perfect, so she's going to die. These recordings can be found on YouTube. However, some of what they say on these tapes are only available on transcripts. Like the part where they believed a teacher overheard them, so they became paranoid and started to pretend to be studying. Instead of stopping the recording altogether, Brian added, Yeah, and if you're watching this, we're probably deceased. Hopefully this will go smoothly and we can get our first kill done and then keep going. They continue by applauding and wishing future serial killers good luck and admit that they have already tried to strike 10 times but failed because their targets were not alone but their patience was about to pay off. Later that night, after leaving Cassie's home, the boys made another recording while they waited down the street from where Cassie was house-sitting, waiting to strike. In it, they could be heard saying, Unfortunately, we have the grueling task of killing our two friends. Yep, we're really nervous right now, but we are ready. They continued with, We know there's lots of doors and lots of places to hide. I unlocked the back doors. Now we just have to wait. Though these assholes didn't get the fame they wanted, they did succeed in taking Cassie's life. It cost Cassie her life to stop these idiots, and that's really unfortunate. But I wish somebody would have stumbled upon these tapes sooner. If only someone had heard them talking like this or found these videos before they killed Cassie. They confessed on camera in detail to everything they were planning before it ever happened. They left nothing out. So has anything happened since the murder? Well, in 2010, Cassie's family filed a civil lawsuit against the Idaho School District. This lawsuit was on the grounds of the school not being proactive in taking the young men's threats seriously. 
They claimed negligence because most of these videos were recorded on school grounds, including the video of them skipping class and creating their death list, and how they were going to kill Cassie. However, the Supreme Court didn't feel this brutal murder was something the school district could have foreseen, and the case was dismissed. Cassie left behind a legacy, one that reminds us to be kind, vulnerable, and remain hopeful. She was very loved by her community, and so many came out to support her family during what would be the worst time in their lives. Brian and Tori are both still serving life in prison at the Idaho State Correctional Institution in Ada County, Idaho. The desire to be famous and their obsession with serial killers and fictional movies inspired Brian and Tori to perform a vicious act. When two dark and twisted people who think alike or that are easily manipulated find each other, it's a recipe for disaster. Cassie let them into her space, hung out with them without judgment, and trusted that hurting her would never cross their mind. The only silver lining from this story is that their murder streak wasn't allowed to continue. The fame they craved never came, and now they get to spend the rest of their lives behind bars. We could only hope that if there is an individual as twisted as them watching their tapes online, they see the consequences that their actions led them to. Futures Without Violence is a health and social justice nonprofit with a simple mission to heal those among us who are traumatized by violence today and to create healthy families and communities free of violence tomorrow. From domestic violence and child abuse to bullying and sexual assault, their groundbreaking programs, policy, development, and public action campaigns are designed to prevent and end violence against women and children around the world. Striving to reach new audiences and transform social norms, they train professionals such as doctors, nurses, judges, and athletic coaches on improving responses to violence and abuse. They also work with advocates, policymakers, and others to build sustainable community leadership and educate people everywhere about the importance of respect and healthy relationships. For more information and to see how you can get involved, go to www.futureswithoutviolence.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. And find us on TikTok with at Crime and Conjure Podcasts. Sham, what's our conjure tip this week? Today we're bringing back the rose quartz. In this case, it's used to bring you loving energy and compassion, which is exactly what Cassie gave to all of those who knew her. Rose quartz is known as a healing crystal and stone of unconditional love. It's believed by some to emit strong vibrations of love, which are thought to support emotional and relationship healing, inspiring compassion. So if you're ever feeling low or feel certain darkness over you, place a rose quartz in your hand and meditate with it. That's a great one, and we can all use a little of that right now. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.